following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. So let's picture this scene together, okay? So you have Peter and his buddies, and they're standing before this council, okay? Now, this council, they called it the Sanhedrin, and it was the highest court of justice in Jerusalem during that that period, okay? It's a little hard for us to have a comparison to it, but it's like like having all of the Congress, all of the Supreme Court, and putting them together. Okay, so they could determine laws, they could pass judgments for crimes, they could even do the, um, the, the punishment, so judge and executioner. Additionally, right, they were the, a council of priests, so they were writing the theology, they were writing the books, they were scribes, they were, they were translating the Bible, they were, um, they were giving the sermons. So, in a way, it was like, so they have this high priest, he's like a, a pope, a president, and a Supreme Court justice, all wrapped into one. There's a whole lot of power here in this group, uh, this Sanhedrin. As far as we know, the only check on their power was the Roman government there, who, if they wanted to have a capital punishment, if they wanted to kill someone for a crime, the, the Romans could come in and say, ah, we want to we stop this. But besides that, they had all this authority wrapped up uh, in this large council of men. And they could basically choose your destiny for you because of the power that they had over every sphere of life, right? Religious, political, judicial, social, economic. If they said you were no good, you were an outsider, then... You lost all social capital uh, in Jerusalem and in that, that society. At the center of their domain was the temple, right? This temple that was built by Herod, for all intents and purposes, was, was owned by this ruling class, right? It belonged to them. It was their source of income. They got rich through it. It was their source of power and authority. They could call things clean and unclean. They could allow certain things in, keep other things out. They had the center of their authority here in this temple. <laughs> so, right, it's no small thing that Peter, the, right, the, the fisherman, uh, and his apostles stand up to these men. It's no small thing. And I, I kind of wonder, I'm like, you know, it could have been easier to just, like, sneak out the back door quietly, right? Like, let's, like, why try to start this fledgling movement um, right in the shadow of the center of power in the religious uh, Jewish system of that day. Why not just sneak away quietly, go somewhere else, start your movement there? Why not keep things nice and private? Yes, right? we can have quiet conversations with the lights dim at night and, and talk about this Jesus. Why go to the temple and stand before the very council that had killed Jesus? 
right? They're the ones that had judged him guilty of blasphemy and said he needed to die. Why go and challenge them? Right? Why is that? But we see it in Jesus. We, we see it in the beginning of Acts. He says, you'll receive power. The Holy Spirit will come on, on you, and you'll be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem, right? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus had planted them there in Jerusalem for a purpose, and they were willing to risk everything. And you, and you see it. it. It's almost like, so earlier for our passage from last week, they, they even say to these men, you know what? You're responsible for, for killing the author of life, right? You killed the Messiah, the one that you all talk about every, every Sabbath, the one that you've been waiting for. You, he showed up, you missed him, you killed him. I, I tried to think of kind of an analogy for how we could like, feel the weight of what an accusation this is. And the best I could think of was, was going to Saudi Arabia and declaring publicly at the center of Mecca that the head religious leader of the Muslim faith in Saudi Arabia had burned a Quran. Right? We hear in the news about how offensive that would be and, and the anger that erupts. So imagine going to the very center of, of their religious sanctity and saying that the most respected leader had done that. That's kind of like what Peter and the apostles are doing. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that going to get him in trouble? And so, in this conversation that, that, we, uh, that we see happening and in this, uh, this passage, right, we see this guy show up, or he's there, but he, he speaks up, Gamaliel, and he, he tries to, to talk some sense into them, right? He says, basically, if this is from men, it's going to fail. We've seen it in the past. It's happened before. It'll happen again. They'll just disappear into uh, forgotten memory. But if this is from God, if God is in this movement, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And if you try, you'll actually be found to be opposing God. And you see, even in the language there, there's a bit of uncertainty that these men have, right? They, they, they can't comprehend how what the apostles are saying could be true, but on the other side, they see the miracles, Right? They see all the people that love them. It even says a few times that they're afraid of challenging them because they don't want to get stoned by the people. So obviously there's such a movement that's more grassroots from the, from the, the common people that these powerful men are afraid to punish the apostles. So there's a certain tension that they feel, and so they say, okay, well, we'll just, we'll just beat them publicly, humiliate them, shame them publicly, and then let them go on their way. And there's this amazing, these amazing words. Uh, I want you to, to see this here in uh, the end of chapter 5. All right, when they call them back, um, they beat them, and then they, they release them. And it says in verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see how funny that sounds? Right? It's an oxymoron. You can be counted worthy to receive an award, right? Or you can suffer dishonor as a punishment. 
you can't be counted worthy to suffer dishonor. Does that make sense? It's an oxymoron. It's a paradox. Is that possible? Is it? So, we'll get back to that paradox of pain and Christian suffering at the end before we leave today. But they experience this suffering. They're beaten, perhaps with the 39 lashes on their backs, so always bearing the scars of that day. But they leave rejoicing. And then there's this, this verse that our chapter closes in. It says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, this, um, this phrase, in the temple and from house to house, bookends our passage. It first appears in 246 as it describes a worshiping church, right? Taking their bread in the homes and going into the temple every day. It bookends that. It starts there and it ends here. Now, I've always kind of thought of this and I've heard it used basically as a proof text for why we should go to like big building church and then worship in our home. I don't know if you ever heard that before. It's like the proof text. So you got to go to Sunday church and you need to be in a small group. It says it here. You know, I don't know. So I think there's more going on here than telling us kind of what size building we need to meet in. Um, and, and so what I want to do is I want to take a 10,000-foot level uh, of this passage from these two bookends and look at this, this setting that they're in, right? You, you read a story in a narrative, there's a setting, and that setting should bring certain things to mind, right? You read the book of Ruth, and it says, in the time of the judges, and immediately you say, oh, okay, is this a good time or a bad time? If you know your Bible, you're like, oh, this is, this is pretty gnarly. This is pretty bad. So the setting of, of these five chapters so far is the temple. What comes to mind for us in the temple? And I'm going to be covering something that I got a lot of help from with my, my community group. We watched uh, part one of the Bible Projects, a little animation video on the book of Acts. And you guys, who's watched Bible Project videos before? Come on. So we've got to represent the local Portland boys uh, who actually graduated from Multnomah. Um, and they have this rad animation studio and ministry where they just make animation videos on different books of the Bible and different themes through the scriptures. They're free. You can go on YouTube and watch them. The Bible Project. The website is uh, jointhebibleproject.com. Incredibly helpful. I'm going to post the video for the part one of Acts on the CB Facebook page. So you can see this um, in a little more um, engaging uh, visual way. But basically, we're going to take a 10,000-foot level of this theme of the temple and this conflict. And why was it such a place of conflict? And what does it mean for us today? So that's where we're going. I'm going to pray for us and ask the Lord's help, particularly for me ending on time, which is where the most grace will be needed. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit and that he is with us now. And I ask for his help in proclaiming your word and uh, for us to see and know uh, that and experience and live out that beautiful calling of being the people of God and, and even the very temple of God where heaven meets earth. So help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... We have two things with the temple. We have God's design, and then we have the reality, the dirty reality of what actually 
took place. So when we read in the scriptures, we see this design where the temple was meant to be a place of grace. It was where heaven met earth, right? It was a restored Eden. It's why there was all these images of, of, of fruit and paradise within the temple. It was meant to, uh, to evoke the memory of Eden, the memory of a, of a time where there was perfect unity between people and God. There was perfect uh, shalom, peace, and relationship between people and their brothers and sisters and their other people, the, the man and the woman, unity of relationship, a time when there was wholeness in our relationship with ourselves. There wasn't shame. There wasn't guilt. There wasn't um, sickness and, and mental disorder. There was, there was just there was health and wholeness in a time when we had a right relationship with creation, right? There wasn't the curse. Work wasn't this, this heavy burden. It was, in fact, it was a, a joy, and, and there was fruit bearing as a result of our, our work, and we could cultivate it uh, to make it beautiful and productive. And so the temple brought back that picture of Eden. It was a place where people could go to celebrate, right? The offerings and the sacrifices were, were a time of feasting, You'd bring your offering and you would, you would come and you would be honest about sin. You would confess it. But it was a safe place to confess your sin because it always came with the affirmation and the, the assurance of forgiveness and grace. And you would end with a celebration, with a feast. It was a place of right warmth and welcome, but also a, sec- a sacred place set apart Right? You would leave all the labors of the day. You would, you would come on a day of resting and Sabbath. You would leave your anxieties and your fears, and you would come to this sacred set-apart place. It was also a place of provision. We learn in Deuteronomy about how God set up a, a system where the poor would be cared for, and that the, the temple was the center place of, of caring for those in need caring for the marginalized and the weak. It was also a place of welcome, right? Jesus says, uh, quoting the, uh, the scriptures from the Old Testament, that God's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so it wasn't then this closed-off, Jewish-only, Gentiles-stay-out place. It was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, that the nations would stream in to this temple to meet God. That's what the, hem- the temple was designed to be, a place of healing from pain and hope for future life and productivity. But the Bible is painfully honest about the human condition and the nature of religious people and our, our propensity to corruption and hypocrisy. And so you see, from the very beginning, 1 Samuel 2 is the first instance where we learn about priests operating at, the, at the, the altar in the promised land. So the very first priest we meet is a guy named Eli who has two sons. And this guy Eli is morbidly obese, and he's gone blind in his old age. He has no vision. He cannot see. And he has two sons who serve as priests, and the Bible calls them worthless men. So they would... Uh, People would come in to bring their offering to God, and they would pick the best cuts of meat and say, no, no, you don't get to cook that one. I'm going to take it for myself. So they would, even be, they would be stealing the offering that God's people would bring and say, oh, I'm going to take it for myself. And then it, it, it says that they, they, they slept with 
the women in the temple, basically sleeping with the altar girls, perhaps even abusing them. And this was all going on the first time we learn about priests serving in the promised land. And it says that Eli confronts his son and speaks to them, but we have no sense that he actually did something about it. He didn't actually stop their abuses of God's people. In fact, he turned a blind eye and allowed it to go on. And so God, of course, judges Eli and his sons, and they leave that role. Perhaps you think, okay, maybe it gets better when there's an actual temple, right? Maybe Solomon can come around, and we read about this great temple that Solomon builds, right? And it's like two chapters later, the temple's built, there's great offerings made, and then you learn about him his heart going astray after idols. And you read through the the story of the kings and you find out that these idols were actually brought into the temple. And then God has to send his people off into exile because of the idolatry that happened inside the temple. Some some kings would be kind of like, no, no, the the temple is for Yahweh, but we're going to keep the altars over here, right? We keep our altars separate from our worship of the one true God, right? Other guys would be like, forget it. We don't even have to pretend, right? Let's just bring the the idols into the temple, right? At least that's more honest. So God sees this, and he casts uh, the people out of the land. They go into captivity. And the scriptures say it's largely because of their abuse of the worship of the temple and their inclusion and the bringing in of idols into the temple. So, so far, God's people do not have a good record (laughs) of, of how we treat God's house with sanctity. No good record. So then they come back from exile, right? And there's this process to rebuild the temple. And there's some hope. Okay, maybe they'll get it right the second time. And there's a scene in Ezra chapter 3 where all the young people, the young guys are like, yes, we're building the temple. We're laying the foundation. We're so excited. We're going to get this thing right. And then all the, the older men are weeping because they had seen the former glory. They had seen that previous temple. They had, they had known about God's design and what it could have been it was meant to be, and they realized it never would be that again. And so there's this, this mixture of emotion there, even in this new temple. And so as we come to this, this post-exilic temple that Herod built for the Jewish nation The corruption there was not overt like it was in the times of Solomon and the kings. There wasn't idols there. It was more covert like it was during the time of Eli and his sons, right? It was more run-of-the-mill corruption, power, money, and sex that went on and was condoned. So Jesus shows up, right? He shows up into this temple, and the apostles show up, and we read about it in the book of Acts. And famously, what does Jesus do when he goes into the temple? Right, he, it says that he, he knocks over tables. He, he forms a whip and whips the animals and drives them out of the temple. And he says, my, my house is to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. And so there he, this, this temple then becomes a place of conflict, a place of where this, this corruption is being met by the Holy One, the one true high priest who's entered his temple and who will restore it. And so we, we see that. Then moving into the book of Acts, I think that's why Jesus didn't say, okay, the, you get the Holy Spirit and then flee. Go to the Gentiles. 
We see that in the, book, the end of the book of Acts, right? We're going to get there where the, the work is focused on the Gentiles. He doesn't start there because God's got some business to get done in his house. He wants to clean his house. And so Peter and the apostles, they go. They go there doing their miracles at the temple. They're preaching the gospel at the temple. They're confronting these leaders, these most powerful men in the nation. They're confronting them right in their in, in their sweet spot, right? Right in their, their hometown, right in that place of authority and power. So, the last three things we're going to do, I'm gonna, I want us to look at how they challenged that temple corruption. Three things. With their gospel message, with their gospel living, and then finally we'll get back to that paradox of pain, their gospel suffering. There's three ways they challenge this corruption. So first they proclaim this gospel message. And, and there were two types of people that heard it when they proclaimed it, when they would go into the temple. Two types of people heard it, and perhaps those two types of people are here today. There were those that were the, the sinners, right? Those were the people that were the outsiders, and they knew it, and everyone else knew it. Right? They proclaimed this message of hope to them. They were given hope in the good news of God's free grace. And that message to them was that there was nothing that they could do that God would not forgive. Nothing bad that they had done would ever exclude them from the true temple of God, from God's presence. Nothing that they had done or ever could do could exclude them from the family of God and His presence if they would just come and embrace Jesus as their perfect high priest, who alone brings that reconciliation with God. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to hear that word of hope. And there was a second type of person that Jesus and the apostles proclaimed this gospel to. And those were the people who thought they were the insiders, right? Who thought that they were privileged and therefore deserving of God's favor and love. And to them, the gospel was clear, but it was different than that first gospel. To them, they heard and needed to hear that nothing good that they had ever done could ever include them in the family of God. In fact, it was their self-confidence in their good works and their religious pedigree that was the only thing that would exclude them from the temple. And he, he could say that, and they could say that to the very man that was going into the Holy of Holies offering sacrifice and his own self-confidence in his pedigree and perfect behavior is what would keep him out. And that to those people, his word was clear. Their only hope was to turn from that self-confidence and embrace the humble, suffering Savior who came to seek and save the lost, the broken and the corrupt hypocrites, and that there was hope for them all. That was the gospel message. It's what we need to hear ourselves as well. Now, the second way they confronted this corruption, they didn't just proclaim a message, right? They actually lived out a gospel life that fulfilled the purpose of that first temple. And you, you, you see it. You see, through their very life, they challenged this, uh, the corruption that was there. They went in and healed the sick. 
undoing the curse. They were generous to the poor and to the needy and the widows. The Holy Spirit comes on them, fills them with power, and allows them to speak the, go- the gospel in languages of the nations so that all the barriers are brought down in the, and the nations see that they can come in and be a part of the family of God. And you see it here. I think it's worth even just reading this amazing picture in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, where you see, see the same themes of the, of the temple fulfilled in the church. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is a picture of the church fulfilling that original purpose of the temple, and they lived out this gospel life as a community, and all those around sought and were amazed and were drawn into it. Now, when I got to this point in my preparation, there was just, I, I had this tension in my heart and a, and a fear and concern um, that I, I feel like we need to talk about, we need to address. And I You see here in the book of Acts this picture where the church is this place of joy and love and acceptance, right? And it's in contrast to the abuses of power that are going on in the temple of that day. But I can't help but putting myself in the shoes of the person who's hearing me who says, you know what, my experience of church today is actually more like that temple that you're describing than like this church you're describing in Acts 2. Like, and that's, I feel that. I feel the weight of that. And perhaps you have that experience and you have that tension in your heart. Um, that, that, and what you read here sounds more like a fairy tale than what your experience of church has been. And so I want to say two things to that tension. And I think there's, there's two different ways we take that, or two different types of people. One person is the one who's standing outside the church and saying, I see the corruption in the church, and therefore, the message that you proclaim cannot be true. And the other person is the one inside the church saying, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. But you know what? This corruption I see around me, or even just the problems and the things I don't like, that makes me say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of church anymore. Or I don't want to be part of this one. Now I'm going to go find something better. Um, and so those are, those are two types of people, I think, or ways that we can respond to this tension. And I want to answer both of them. The first one, to the person that says, this message can't be true. The gospel message can't be true because the gospel living doesn't match the message. It cuts close to home, and I think... I can think of many heartbreaking stories, um, but some of the worst come to mind related to the abuse of little children and the cover-up that happens to protect the reputation of leaders 
and churches. And the response, the visceral response of disgust and I want nothing to do with church and Christianity, it makes total sense emotionally. I feel it. I feel it to the depth of my being. But I still want to challenge it, okay? It makes sense emotionally, but it doesn't make sense intellectually. And sometimes, honestly, those things are so connected and we can't separate them. So I understand that. But just think about it for a moment. The sinfulness of Christians is simply not a valid argument for the falsehood of Christianity because the Bible teaches that all people are sinners, including Christians, including pastors, including denominational leaders, right? In fact, we we were just reading all these things about the, the temple and Eli and his sons. Where were we reading that? We were reading the Bible. The Bible's painfully honest about this. And the Bible does not condone that corruption. In fact, it confronts it in the clearest terms. In fact, if you go and look for the strongest critiques of religious corruption and hypocrisy, you know what? You're not going to go to some famous atheist. You know where you're going to find the strongest words? The prophet Isaiah or the Gospels in the words of Jesus. Another example is just to look at Martin Luther King Jr. So this month we celebrate, but we don't celebrate. We remember that 50 years ago this month he was assassinated. Think with me for a moment. When he went into, as a, as a Christian pastor, as he went into the southern white churches and confronted their, their racism, he didn't plead with them to have more secular progressive values. If you were only more secular and more progressive, you would stop being racist. That's not what he said. He was saying your racism problem is, is not a problem with Christianity. It's a, it's a problem that you're not actually Christian enough. You have not applied the, the gospel and the teaching of the Imago Dei, right, the image of God. You haven't applied it in a deep enough way, right? The secular worldview is where we get eugenics and where we get racism. That comes from the secular worldview. The teaching of the Imago Dei from the scriptures is that no matter race, age, social status, country of origin, or lifestyle decision, all people deserve respect and dignity. And when Christians fall short of this, it's not because they're Christian, it's because they're not Christian enough. So that's my intellectual answer. And I know that doesn't, that, that, that isn't always enough when there's real emotional pain. But my invitation to you who have been hurt in the church and hurt by Christians is, and you're standing on the outside, is first, I'm sorry for that pain. But please know that you have not rejected Jesus, and it was not Jesus who hurt you. You rejected very imperfect representations of him. And they're called Christians. They're called church leaders. We are flawed and broken. And in fact, that's why we're here. That's why we're in church. Because we need help. And we're not inviting you to come follow us. We're inviting you to follow Jesus. We'll fail you. He never will.
And that's the hope of the gospel. Now, for the second type of person who's in the church, or maybe has been in many churches (laughs) over the years, and you see problems and abuses and corruptions, I think it's a little different answer. And I'm not speaking to the big abuses. If you're in a church where there's abuse and cover-up, you need to go somewhere else, right? Don't stay. I'm not talking about those kind of issues. Those are real. Those, those require legal authorities and serious things being addressed. I'm not talking about that. I'm thinking more of your normal everyday church problems. And I think there's an issue in the American church today where we've become more like Christian connoisseurs, right? We, we go to church kind of like we go to the movies. We go to get entertained, and then we walk out the door ready to give our thumbs up or our thumbs down, right? What do you recommend? Did you go see Black Panther? You recommend it? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Did you hear the sermon this week? What do you think? Right? We become Christian connoisseurs with our personal tastes and preferences. And then if something goes wrong in our church, it doesn't live up to our standards, or God forbid, the church changes something, right? We get angry and leave, looking for a better show down the street. Right? I think that is a common response to the normal run-of-the-mill problems in church life and community. And I said it was, this happens in America today, but it's also not just an American problem and also not a new problem. I'm going to put up a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in the book Life Together. We have it in the bookstore, highly recommended, like if you're going to read a book this year, particularly about Christian community, this is the, perhaps the best. And he says this, Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community, perhaps that's how we bring the idols into our church today. Those who dream of this idolized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter into the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. Could it be that our view of that ideal Christian community, or could it even be that we we take this passage here in Acts 2 and put that up as the enemy of actual community? So, the kingdom is here and not here, now and not yet. The church is heaven meets earth with a bit of hell mixed in because we're all fleshly. We're still here, right? So, adjust your expectations accordingly. (laughs) Let's end with this final theme, the paradox of pain, of gospel suffering. Jesus and the apostles confront this corruption that's there with this gospel message of hope that we all need to hear, with this gospel lifestyle of this transformed new temple. And then finally, there's gospel suffering. Because you know what? The, these, these guys in power didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to receive this gospel or this Jesus. 
And so the, the gospel suffering is the final way we see the church, the new temple of God, overcome those who stand against it. And it's actually a combination of the two previous ways, the gospel message and the gospel living. Gospel suffering is actually how we live out and fulfill the very heart of the message that we proclaim. Right, we said at the beginning of, this, of this, this message, the apostles rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. It's a paradox. You can be counted worthy to be given an award, or you can suffer dishonor as a punishment, but the paradox is how can you be counted worthy to suffer dishonor and pain? And to understand this are those, those key words at the end of, of Acts 5, where it says, that this happened, and they suffered dishonor, and they rejoiced because it was for the name. It was for the name of Jesus that they suffered. That's what makes all the difference with our suffering and what it means to be a Christian who suffers. Right? You see, the path to glory that Jesus took was the same path that all of us must follow. He gained his life by losing it. The crown he wore was a crown of thorns. Jesus is, that, as Hebrews tells us, that true and better high priest. And the sacrifice, that true and better sacrifice that he gave was himself. And in that new temple called the church, we join as fellow priests. It says that we're a kingdom of priests, that Jesus is that high priest, that he is the cornerstone of this new temple, and we enter in to this place of worship, and we offer that same kind of sacrifice that he did. We offer up our lives in sacrificial love. And every day, we have that choice to make multiple times. Am I going to live out sacrificial love? Christian love always costs something. Or am I going to walk in selfishness? and self-protection, and self-promotion. We have that choice every day. And the way of Christian suffering is to follow the path of Jesus. I want to close and read together Hebrews 13, 12 through 16, and I want us to read it together. Is it up there? So, let us go out to him, outside the camp, and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. And don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Let's pray. Jesus. Would you receive that sacrifice, even as we, as we sing your praises now together as a community and as we go out into this world? We want to go out of the camp with you and suffer that disgrace that you bore. Not because we want disgrace, but because we want to be with you. And we know that is the path to victory. That is the path to uh, to your good purpose in this world. Thank you, Jesus. We desire to be formed by the Word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. 
For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.